To Ecclesiastes, we return this morning to pick up in chapter 2. The search for meaning in the world continues. So far, the preacher, as he calls himself, Solomon, as we know him better, has introduced us to this, the topic of this wisdom book in these terms. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? From the opening, he's declared the answer in the strongest terms possible. In fact, he started with the answer before he even gave us the question, didn't he? Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities all is vanity. He started his book, you see, with the conclusion. There's a frustrating meaninglessness to life for us. Humans under the sun, isn't there? Honesty requires us to admit it. Now, search as we may, we cannot find the key that unlocks the meaning of it all. Life seems to run the same way as the world does, doesn't it? In cycles, over, around, and round, and cycle after cycle, leaving human beings a place, seeking a place of peace, a place of, of permanence, of resolution, of rest. Our hearts are restless. St. Augustine said. Last week the preacher thought to apply wisdom to the situation. Surely, surely we can unravel it with wisdom. After all, he'd been given plenty of it, we remember, in answer to his prayer. Surely with the application of enough wisdom, the mystery might be solved. Indeed, what he found is that wisdom, even the, the greatest amount of wisdom given to a man by God, still remains insufficient. His search for meaning through wisdom ended, didn't it, in spectacular failure. Why? Well, he explained that to us, too, because what is crooked cannot be made straight. Some things in life remain painfully askew, don't they? And we cannot straighten them out. Not with words, not with efforts, not with interpretation, not even with wisdom. And what is lacking cannot be counted, he told us. Trying to apprehend the meaning of life by the application of wisdom proves unsuccessful because we just don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. You who keep financial books deal with this often when trying and attempting to to balance the account, don't you? No matter how hard you try, no matter how many times you add them up, sometimes the numbers just don't work. What's the problem? Well, you know exactly what the problem is. Something is missing. But therein lies the impossible problem. That's the frustration. How do you count what simply isn't there? And so you make some adjustment to the books to make them balance, to justify them. But you know in your heart the whole time you're just budging. And it leaves you feeling very dissatisfied. A wisdom's first conclusion about life is that wisdom is unsufficient. And what is worse, worse, the more wisdom one has, 
the more sorrow and pain comes with it. Wisdom cannot satisfy. So now what? If, if wisdom can't open the lock, what then? Ah, says the preacher to himself, perhaps a trip to Vanity Fair. <laughs> that might do the trick. Maybe meaning can be found there. I'll give that a try. Will it work? We'll see in a moment after we pray. Father, we thank you that you supply us wisdom. And though with wisdom comes pain, yet with wisdom also come the good gifts of knowing how to live in a world that we don't understand, in a life that is so very difficult. And in wisdom, Father, we learn what we've just sung a few minutes ago, that you are the one who carries us through our pains. You are the one who bore the most terrible of them, yourself in our place on the cross. You are ever with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And you reign on high over all things for the church, even us. So make us brave. Make us willing to receive all that your word has to say. Make us truly wise. That we may live this life under the sun. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. 
some striving after win. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Vanity Fair. I don't mean the magazine or the novel or the movie based on the novel. I mean to remind you of that place in John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, to which Christian and his companion, Faithful, came on their way to heaven, to the celestial city. The name of the town was Vanity, and in that place was a fair called, of course, naturally, Vanity Fair. All sorts of vanities could be found there all year long, and everything was for sale, such as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and the delights of all sorts as whores, bods, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. And there was in that place all manner of entertainment. It's one of the longest stops on Christian's journey. And when you read Pilgrim's description, Bunyan's description of it, it's not hard to find oneself actually drawn by its allure. As one describes it, it's, it's glamour, glitz, fashion, and power, and everything is buyable. In his search for meaning, Solomon stopped there at Vanity Fair for a shopping spree. It was, he soliloquized, an experiment. Come now, he said to himself, I will test you. I will test you, self, with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. As I was thinking of the, of the title for the sermon earlier this week, I considered another alternative to the one I end up actually using in the bulletin. I thought I might call this sermon, Don't Try This at Home. <laughs> this is not an experiment that the Bible is prescribing to you. In fact, if anything, the lesson, at least one of the main lessons to draw from this week's passage is that you do not want to have to learn this one the hard way. Children, don't try this. Learn this lesson the easy way today. Don't try what Solomon did. And together, children and Adults, let's enter the laboratory with Solomon now, shall we, this morning, to witness his experiment with vanity in his search for the solution to vanity, to the meaninglessness, the vapor-like quality of the life of man under the sun, and then, like good scientists, we'll conclude with some observations. The first phase of Solomon's experiment, his test was to give himself to laughter. Perhaps meeting can be found in a good laugh. He's not alone, apparently, in his pursuit. Many people look for relief in humor, don't they? Uh, no wonder it's such an industry in America, as awash as we are in sitcoms and, and comedy clubs. Two days ago, it was reported that in 2022, Americans streamed through their televisions by services like Netflix and Hulu more than 19 
18.4 million years of content. That is up, by the way, by 27% over 2021, when according to Nielsen, we streamed a mere 15 million years of programming. What have we been watching? Well, among the most watched in the streaming were episodes of the comedy show Seinfeld with 19.3 billion, that's billion with a B, 19.3 billion minutes of Seinfeld were streamed into American homes just last year. Now, apparently Solomon's not alone in seeking a place of refuge in laughter. But as anyone can tell you, believer or unbeliever, laughter is little more than a brief distraction from the problem. It picks you up and it drops you off at the very place where it found you. It is, concludes Koheleth in verse 2, madness. So naturally Solomon added an element to the mix to this experiment, right? Pour in some liquid. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. As Phil Riken once put it, he added some lubricant to his laughter. Perhaps laughter and liquor together will unlock the mystery. Now we need to pause here for a minute because there's something in this verse that, that, that has left many scratching their heads. Solomon adds immediately, even as he's mixing cocktails, he adds that his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. Isn't that fascinating? He says something similar again in verse 9. My wisdom remained with me. Now what should we take from that? I believe the point is that it was not in drunkenness that Solomon was seeking meaning, but simply in the use of the consumption of alcohol, which the Bible itself teaches us is a good gift from God. It was not in outright debauchery, but rather in a dabbling, even if a deep dabbling in pleasure. Remember, this is an experiment. We might even say it's a controlled experiment in which Solomon is truly seeking the solution. Alas, this also resulted in abject failure. It was such an abject failure, in fact, that he doesn't even bother giving us the results of the experiment. Apparently, laughter, even when lubricated with liquor, fails to deliver the answers to life's deepest questions. So from the pub, Solomon turns to better homes and gardens. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He planted forests. Seeking meaning. We're told in Scripture that Solomon built the king's house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon and another house for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. He also built cities. Hazor, Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer and Beth Horon and Balath and Tadmor in the wilderness. And when construction projects failed to satisfy his fancy, well, out he went and picked up a little, just a little land for gardening. <laughs> just a little. 
something the size of a small city. <laughs> Solomon, uh, you know, the hanging gardens of Babylon had nothing on, on Solomon's garden and parks, and, and which he included vineyards and fruit trees and pools large enough to, to water entire forests. You know, archaeologists have found the water reservoirs some of them, the, the three of which measure as much as 600 feet long, 250 feet wide, and 50 feet deep of squared stone set in the ground. It is a virtual feats of construction. Did he find the answer in the garden? No. As beautiful as gardens most certainly are, Debbie and I have discovered and toured many amazingly striking gardens together over the years. The answer to life's questions are not found by tiptoeing through the tulips, even acres and acres and acres of them like we experienced, Debbie and I, a few years ago in Linden. In fact, in the garden, we were reminded of the vanity of vanities or the passing nature of our lives. Debbie and I toured that tulip farm one day, and by the end it was all of the next day, it was all harvested. And what had been a sea of colors, uh, neat columns of reds and yellows and purples and oranges was reduced to a field of stubbled stems. In one day, vanity of vanities. So under the accumulation of stuff, he turns, still in Vanity Fair, you can read in First Kings this afternoon, if you like, how many possessions Solomon was able to accumulate for himself. Thousands of slaves, herds, flocks beyond any other in history to that point his possessions were. 12,000 imported horses. Who's got enough time to ride 12,000 horses, right? 12,000 imported horses, silver and gold. He didn't just shop at Vanity Fair, he bought it. He possessed Vanity Fair. He took possession of it. Those of you who are old enough to remember his voice at this point might hear Robin Leach announcing the next episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And as if mountains of stuff and silver and gold were not enough, he adds the finest of the fine arts. In the middle of verse 8, we read that he rounded up a vocal ensemble of men and women that might shame the most amazing choirs of our day. Yet the satisfaction of meaning secured or, or of understanding apprehended was not found in that either. In fact, ironically, just the opposite. And even unbelievers understand this truth about music. In an article that appeared 10 years ago in the journal uh, Philosophy of Music Education Review, entitled A Reflection on Musical Experience as Existential Experience, an Ontological Turn, a couple of philosophers reflect on musical experience as existential experience, by which they explain they mean to say something about musical experience in relation to what we call the existential questions. Which questions, by the way, are exactly the ones that Solomon is after here. The question, they said, of meaning is relevant here. They go on to say, as our thoughts about human dignity, the problems of suffering, hope, time, death, belonging, and coherence, individual existential experiences that 
clear the ground for a renewed contact with our own being. In the experience of music, we are, they say, brought into contact with significant dimensions of being human. Into the realization of our limited control of the world, of our own finiteness. Musical experience, they observe, seems to be particularly well-suited to bringing us into contact with the basic condition of our lives, such as despondency, vulnerability, mortality, the fragility of relations, and existential loneliness. In short, our lack of control. All from music. Well, Solomon would say to that, Amen. Or, been there, got the t-shirt, you know. Even the most beautiful of music lilting over the home of Solomon's favorite wives, you know, served only to underscore the vanity of vanities of human life under the sun. And, by the way, speaking of wives, Solomon tried that too. I mean sex. And lots and lots and lots of it. Many concubines, verse 8, 300 of them to be exact, and 700 wives besides. But for all the pleasures Solomon gorged himself on, there was no meaning to be found there either. I know you understand Solomon's point here in all of what has, has come before this, and yet there is a part of you that envies him, isn't there? A part of you that wishes you could enjoy the lifestyle of, of the king. You could have people doing what you, whatever you want, or whatever you don't want to do, instead of you. The pleasures were at your every turn. His experiment may have failed, but do you think to yourself, well, I might be willing to give it a try. In fact, some of you have. In miniature version, of course, because very few, if any, have lived as large as Solomon had, did, and, and you found that it is true. It is altogether true, isn't it? Keeping nothing from your eyes, denying your heart no pleasure, working and toiling to grab all the gusto you can get while you can, will not only fail to deliver what your heart desires, it will actually only exacerbate the emptiness, the sadness, the sense of lostness, the restlessness of your human heart. Our hearts simply cannot be satisfied in vanity fair. Why? Because, as Augustine reminded us earlier this morning, our hearts are restless. Until when? Do you remember? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, in God. Here's the observation that follows the devastatingly unsuccessful experiment the preacher performed on himself. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... We've come on that word several times in the last few months, haven't we? Behold. Stop and look at this. 
listen. All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In other words, strike two. Last week it was by means of wisdom that the preacher sought to pin down the ultimate answers, a solution to the vanity of life under the sun. Strike one, failing to apprehend them by wisdom, he tries the route of pleasure and possessions and pride. Did you notice in those 11 verses how often the word I, me, my, myself was used? Two strikes so far. Now, we might be tempted to take away from this passage that we should never enjoy a good laugh then, right? That, that, that we should never be merry with wine. That we should just stop building. That entrepreneurship is a, a wash, you know? That, that we should never bother with gardening. That we should just leave off music and sex. That's not the point at all. All of these things are God's good blessings to us, and they are to be enjoyed by us under the sun. We'll come to see that later in Ecclesiastes, but in a Godward direction. There is real joy to be experienced in all of these things that we've just listed. As I say, the writer of Ecclesiastes will tell us as much in due time. A mouth filled with laughter, the Bible calls a gift and, and points out that even unbelievers understand that in Psalm 126. Wine is God's good creature, gladdening the heart of man. Having risen from the growth God gives to the vineyards, we cultivate and must cultivate, even as Solomon did but for a different purpose altogether, for the glory of God. Gold and silver, these are great blessings from the Lord when used for His kingdom's advancements and with His kingdom priorities. Music can be made and enjoyed not as an end in itself, but to the glory of God. And there is great satisfaction in building a home and surrounding it with flowers and gardens and even filling it with good things inside. The bedroom is a place of exquisite pleasure to a husband and wife who receive and enjoy the gift of intimacy where that gift only can be truly enjoyed within the bonds of holy matrimony between a man and woman joined by God together in covenant with each other and with Him. See, God is not the taker of pleasure. God is the giver of pleasure. In fact, God is the inventor of pleasure. And He loves to give it to His children. And wisdom understands the that the same things, the very same things that we've just listed can be, the very same things can be bane or blessing depending on how they're used and how they're enjoyed and toward what end. If you seek in laughter and wine, in vineyards and blooms, in gold and silver, in music and sex, the answers to the madness of life under the sun, you will be disappointed every single time. And these will turn to gravel in your mouth. But 
enjoy them to the glory of God. And it's a totally different story, different altogether. What, after all, is our chief end? It is to glorify God and what? What's the rest of the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Yes, enjoy Him forever. These good gifts are for your enjoyment, dear flock. They are. When you receive them from Christ and with thanksgiving. Malcolm Muggeridge was a widely famous journalist and satirist during the mid-20th century. And the fact that I have to explain that to you um, about him or that you've never heard his name before just this very moment is eloquent testimony to what we've learned already from the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes that uh, we are all all alike forgotten. Uh, But that aside, Muggeridge was an agnostic for most of his life until he was later converted in a wonderful way to Christ. He knew a thing or two or five or ten or a hundred about the meaninglessness of life under the sun. But he also came to understand clearly where true meaning is found. He didn't unravel the mysteries, but he came to understand where true meaning is found. And with these words of the Christian muggerage, We finish. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It may happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, Multiply those tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together and they are nothing. Less than nothing. They are a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty irrespective of who or what they are.